You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today we're interviewing Dr. David Hawkes, Director of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry at the Victorian Cytology Service, or VCS, in Melbourne. Welcome, David. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, David, on December 1st last year, 2017, Australia moved into the brave new world of the National Cervical Screening Program, which uses primary human papillomavirus, or HPV, nucleic acid testing as the cornerstone of the program. This HPV testing requires the identification of all 12 designated oncogenic HPV types, including separate detection of HPV 16 and 18. As GPs, we're relying heavily on our labs to identify these oncogenic strains. Can you tell us how reliable are the labs in detecting all of these strains? At the moment, there's seven assays that can be used in the ASEAN program. To give you some context, there's over 300 HPV assays currently available. When we talk about the oncogenic strains, just a moment of clarification for the Australian program. So there's actually 12 strains that are considered causational of cancer. Uh, but we actually test for 14 for both historical and, and technical reasons. Okay. But we just call them oncogenic in the Australian program because elsewhere they might be called higher risk. Um, but because in Australia, GPs are given uh, recommendations, either low risk, intermediate risk or higher risk. So the idea of having an intermediate risk, which is a high risk, but also a high risk, which is a high risk, started just confusing everyone. The terminology we use is oncogenic. It's not strictly correct, but it sort of gets across the important point and just makes it a little bit easier to have conversations between you know, lab staff, scientists, and also practitioners. Yep. As I said, there's about seven assays that are currently for use. I say currently because there's actually a quality framework. In the Netherlands, which is the first country to go to it, they did a a nationwide tender and they, they're using one assay. In Australia, we have a quality framework. So there has to be a sensitivity for cervical disease, yep. a specificity for the disease to reduce overtreatment, and also that they're reproducible both within the same lab and between labs. That's pretty much the basis of it. It, it gets really technical, but essentially all of these things are the, the cream of the crop. They've all got to pass this sort of clinical framework. And on top of that, over all of that, every lab that runs cervical screening has to run non-manufacturer independent controls on every day that they do screening, which is is certainly a, a very high level of quality because this is the first molecular screening test that is used in such a wide community. Mm, okay. So in terms of sensitivity and specificity, we're talking over and above 99%. Well, it's a little bit more confusing that because when you're looking at something like chlamydia or gonorrhea, you want to detect every real infection. You don't want to do that with HPV. So even HPV 16, which is linked to 70% of cervical cancers, 46% will actually clear up by themselves in, in 18 months. Right. So you don't want to detect every infection that was sort of transient or coming and going. Uh, you want to detect infections that are, are more likely to lead to, to disease. So that's why we say a clinical cutoff. Yep. So essentially, we know that with all of these tests, if you have a negative result, your risk of having a high-grade lesion in five years is about half of that of having a high-grade lesion two years after a negative uh, pap smear. Okay, interesting. So can you explain for us, David, what's the rationale for switching from cytology-based testing to HPV testing? I would have thought intuitively that cytology-based testing, we actually screen the cells themselves, would have been superior. 
In theory, so there's a couple of reasons why we changed. The first is that Australia has one of the best screening programs in the world. Uh, and when it started, within the first 10 years, we halved the rate of cervical cancer in Australia. Mm-hmm. However, for the last 10 years, we haven't been able to make any improvements on that. And, and going more regularly, going to one year, really wasn't going to give us too many benefits. Plus, we have possibly the most vaccinated community in the world for HPV. And as a result, the predictive value of cytology was going to get harder because a lot of the easy things to, to detect were the, the 16 and 18 infections, which are the one we uh, are now seeing heavily reduced in, in women 38 years of age or younger. Yep. Um, but the other thing is cytology itself is only sort of 58 to 60% sensitive, whereas HPV is, you know, depending on which study, you, but it's, it's generally well over 90% sensitive. So those two things, both having a more sensitive test and also having a, the vaccine effect of the lesions, you do get low-grade lesions for a variety of reasons and they clear up by themselves. But if a woman has two lesions in a row, she gets sent to Culp and, and there's a fair chance she'll get a biopsy. But if it's HPV negative, we know overwhelmingly that that's not going to lead to more serious disease. So you're going to get a whole bunch of women that uh, could have treatment and that could have knock-on effects about cervical incompetency and pregnancy and all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of things that line up. Mm, okay. So there's 12 types of HPV that are definitely oncogenic. Why is it that only types 16 and 18 are required to be reported? Um, because not all oncogenic HPVs are created equal. Uh, okay. No matter where you are in the world, HPV 16 and HPV 18 account for about 70% of cervical cancers. So in Australia, there was a study that was looked at cervical cancers, uh, over 800 of them between 2005 and 2015, and they found that about 52% were linked to HPV-16 and 20% for HPV-18. So we know even in the most modern data set we have, that's what we're looking at. You look at the next five types, so that's 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58, which are the types that are included in the brand new vaccine, which has been introduced this year. They account for about another 20% of cancers. Okay. So of those 12 types... Seven of them account for over ninety percent of the cancers, and that's and two of them count for seventy percent. That's why we know that if it's the sixteen or eighteen, the risks of developing cancer are so much higher than nearly anything else. Mm. Okay, yeah, very interesting. So there's a threshold level for the detection of the oncogenic strains of HPV, and I believe that these thresholds are determined by what is it, the major criteria? So the Meyer criteria. Yeah. Maya. Okay, thank you. I thought that was a department store. Thank you. Um, can you please explain to me and, and demystify it for me, please? Yeah, I mean, this comes down to the fact that HPV, 80% of infections go away by themselves. So we don't want to detect the infection that's coming. will be around for six months and disappear. And, and that's sort of where we're at. What the Maya criteria does is it looks at disease, which in their case is sin to or above so the cervical interepithelial neoplasia or above mm-hmm. you, you've got to be sensitive enough to detect pretty much 90 percent of these uh, compared to to other tests uh, but you've also got to be specific so you're not detecting every possible infection but you're you're detecting you've got 98 percent sensitivity yep. uh, sorry 98 specificity for these these infections links to sin too so there's a whole bunch of stuff about the microarea criteria but what it comes down to is you want to detect cervical lesions that are high grade and you don't want to detect every single infection and the my criteria has been around for a decade 
and it still holds true. There's there's actually no real questions about the quality of it because it's actually been shown over and over again to have really good predictive value, irrespective of the test, who's run it, and when, in which country. Mm. Okay. This is fascinating, the science behind it all. Um, one of the issues on a more practical level that I and my more experienced female college have encountered is the contaminant issue, which I believe is related to the amount of lubricant used. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. I love to talk about lubricant. Um, it was <laughs> when, it, when I started VCS Pathology about three years ago, we... We were doing, we're doing a clinical trial called Compass, which has recruited over 76,000 women. Uh, we were doing uh, two-thirds of women get a HPV test, one-third get a cytology, and therefore we were doing quite a lot of HPV tests and we were starting to get problems with uh, lubricant, particularly with the cytology. And so our, our practitioners sort of were trying to work out what the problem was and they, a lot of the, the cult clinics use warm water, mm-hmm. whereas GPs tend to use lubricant. And apparently the advice is use no more than a five cent piece and not towards the end. Yep. But a lot of practitioners in the in the period between May last year and December, when we were actually increasing the amount of liquid-based cytology we were doing, the amount of lubricant was causing problems with the cytology. And so there was this big shift away from using too much lubricant. Okay. But there is a bit of tolerance, but if you're having problems with a HPV test with lubricant, uh, you will definitely not be able to get a good liquid-based cytology out of it. Okay. And is that related to inhibition of the PCR or how does that affect things? That's exactly what it is. Okay. So what about low cellularity and is this more of an issue with self-collected specimens? So we're quite lucky. It's like I looked up the data and I think the most recent data I found was that about uh, traditional pap smears have about a 2.7% unsatisfactory rate. Mm-hmm. Currently, HPV is running around 02 to 0.3%. So it's much less likely to produce an invalid result. Yep. Uh, and those we, we've sort of examined it a bit and we've actually found that low cellularity is the problem. And what we mean by that is that you're looking at less than 1,500 cells collected for an entire vial. Mm-hmm. So we know that essentially there's normally something else in play. It's not if you take a sample, you get enough cells. Um, with self-collection, we know that uh, our lab's the only lab that can do self-collection in Australia at the moment yep. uh, due to regulatory reasons. And uh, we know that our, our self-collection is the invalid, the unsatisfactory rate is somewhere between the practitioner collected and the old cytology rate so it's 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 somewhere around the between one and two percent mm-hmm. which is great because some studies in, in different countries predominantly developing countries have had invalid rates of self-collection well over 10 percent. so yeah. we're really happy that our, our practitioners are educating the women about self-collection and they're feeling comfortable with doing it and having such a low rate is a really a sort of a, a marker of the education that's being done by the practitioners Mm. Look, I think at the coalface, it is a big advantage because, you know, one of the key groups that are that are the highest risk groups that are still getting cervical cancers are the unscreened women. And a lot of those unscreened women, it's because they don't want a pap smear. They don't want a speculum examination. So to have this option, I think, is a, a big bonus of the of the program. Yeah, and I mean, that's the whole point, and that is one of the really big advantages of HPV testing. We've done pilot projects, and we're doing countries all throughout the, the Southeast Asia area where they haven't been able to establish cytology-based programs. Mm. So HPV is a great thing, but 
we know that in Victoria, I think it's 90% of women who develop cervical cancer are underscreened. Mm. So we've done more than a 1,000 self-collection samples since we introduced it. And so that's a 1,000 women who have gone at least four years since their last screen uh, who are actually willing to re-engage with the program, which is, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So finally, David, if you had three pieces of advice for Australian GPs, what would they be? Um, HPV testing isn't perfect, but it is clearly better than cytology. There's been discussions about the under-25s, but the data clearly shows that the since the National Cervical Screening Program began in 91, we haven't made any significant dents on cancer in this age group. And there is a provision in the new uh, program for people who have had early-onset sexual activity uh, to have a single HPV test prior to joining the program at 25. The second thing is ask questions. If there's something you want more information about, ask. Ask your local lab if you can't get the answers you need. Ask VCS. We're a not-for-profit and we're a charity. This is what we do. 97% of the stuff in our lab is about cervical screening. We live in and breathe it. We've got liaison physicians and nurse practitioners who are there just to answer questions. And yeah, and and the final thing is I'll put in a plug for uh, practitioners to check out and join Compass as it's something that GPs can do to assist with the evolving of our program because now that we've got a molecular test, so a PAP is a PAP is a PAP. It's always going to be the same thing, but a molecular test, we have the ability to actually develop this further. There's a whole range of different, you know, maybe cytology is not going to be the best reflex test in five years. And this allows us to look at it, and that's something that we're looking at is whether this or sort of certain biomarkers are are better opportunities for getting really specific results and sending less women to colposcopy that are unlikely to need it. Yeah, fantastic. Look, thanks very much for your time today, David, and thanks for being on The Good GP. To all of our listeners, please remember that if you want to email us any questions or any comments, our email address is thegoodgp, or one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much, David, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks for having me on. 